Welcome to False Flag Weekly News, the weekly news show that tells you as much truth as you can stand, and then some. I'm Kevin Barrett with Dr. Alan Sabrowski. Hey, welcome, Alan. How are you? My pleasure, Kevin. I'm good to be here. All right. Good to be with you, too. So let's see. I guess we have to run through all our uh, obligatory disclaimers and things like that. So uh, we question things here, and if you don't question anything, uh, you should at least question questioning, in which case you do uh, question something. But uh, if you don't question anything at all, you're in the wrong place, you're watching the wrong show, you're maybe even on the wrong planet, and certainly the wrong country, whichever country it is. <laughs> and uh, so here's our, our obligatory warning about uh, disturbing content. It's it's really uh, extremely disturbing. The world you're in is, is really, really disturbing. If you don't like it, take a rocket ship off with Jeff Bezos and go somewhere else. Okay, and any more disclaimers? Oh, yeah, the medical health disclaimer. We're not physicians, so don't let us do brain surgery on you. Okay, done with the disclaimers. What next? Ah, yes, well, the iconic more, photo. <laughs> there's one other disclaimer you should add. Oh, what's and that? that? It becomes increasingly obvious that truth and honesty are no defense. Indeed. Uh, that's that's the ultimate disclaimer. <laughs> so here, here's our iconic photo capturing the unforgettable moment when Jacob Rothschild stuck his finger into the chest of Prince Charles and lectured him about who really runs the world and why Charles really ought to watch False Flag Weekly News. Um, man, I wish I'd been there. Okay, so so moving on to our, our stories this week. Uh, this was a, a pretty good one over at Failed Evolution blog. I'd never heard of that before, but uh, it seems to have evolved into something successful because this was a really good story. Uh, so, Alan, did, do you buy the assertion that the beginning of massive diversions of U.S. liquid natural gas supplies from Asia to Europe in or even before last December shows that the U.S. knew that this war was coming and indeed, obviously, deliberately provoked it? I think that it's not so much U.S. policy provoked it, it's U.S. and NATO policy and actions have provoked it. I think this, what this article shows, is almost incidental to that. We have been predicting an invasion for quite a number of months, and it's like anything else. A stop clock can be right twice a day, and if you make the same prediction enough times, eventually it's going to be correct. Okay, but that liquid natural gas diversion is pretty important here because, according to some analyses of this war, it's really a war of the United States against Europe, and especially Germany, which could be the industrial heartland and the major generator of wealth for Europe, uh, if Germany were smart enough to build up its industry and use cheap Russian gas to do it, and the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was just coming online to do that, suddenly the U.S. provokes the war, which forces Germany to start buying ultra-expensive U.S. liquid natural gas that's being now diverted. It was started getting diverted from Asia last December, proving foreknowledge of the war. And now Europe's going to go completely broke, and that's going to prop up the U.S. and perhaps even the U.S. dollar for a little while at least until it all comes crashing down. Uh, is that analysis more or less right or not? I, I, I really wouldn't buy it. That, that assumes a degree of coherence on the part of the Biden administration's <laughs> policy that I have seen absolutely no evidence of in any other place or case. Uh, outline cases happen, but this isn't, I think, one of them. It's going to be really intriguing that for the United States to allow a diversion of natural gas that it needs, and it is going to desperately need something here because our entire energy system is collapsing along with our food supply chain well we are probably going to see some pretty high energy and food prices and that's going to be really hard on the people who uh, can least afford that stuff that's for sure uh so next slide here uh dollar hegemony collapsing uh so this is the law of unintended consequences when you have these geniuses who think hey let's uh, kill germany by forcing expensive American gas on them, not let Germany buy Russian gas by ginning up this Ukraine war. Uh, and then we can freeze Russian assets and we can screw Russia and sanction them and destroy Russia. And then there'll be regime change in Russia. We'll put in another stooge like Yeltsin. So that seems to have likely been the plan, but now it's backfiring as suddenly Russia 
is demanding payment in rubles for its energy, which Europe still needs and lots of other places are still buying, which suddenly propped up the ruble back to as high as it was before the whole thing started. And I think it was on April 1st that that's yesterday that uh, Russia was started accepting uh, or demanding rubles. Uh, so, uh, According to Pepe Escobar's analysis, we're, and, and in this case, Michael Hudson's, I guess, we're, we're seeing the end of the dollar empire. Um, and I, I assume you're familiar with that analysis, Alan. I'm not sure whether you completely agree with it or not. Well, we, I do, in fact, agree with it. We've seen some of this coming for a long time. It's been a question of precisely when alternatives to the U.S. dollar would come forward in that way, whether it would be the ruble, China's yuan, what would happen? But right now, it seems there's more than enough countries out there that are interested in not being tied to the dollar. That's going to add to the U.S. debt, which is right now, Kevin, what is it, over $32 trillion? It's uh, it's going up so fast, I can't keep track of it. Yeah, it's over $32 trillion. It's only a question before the United States defaults on its payments. And when that happens, it's going to steamroller on top of everything else that's happening. I, I'm just sitting here hoping that I, I pass from the scene before before the complete collapse comes. Several of my European friends, and I, the one person I talked to in Asia, not enough to be an end worth talking about, have said that what's in our future is hyperinflation. They see it before the end of the year, perhaps as early as the end of summer. And that there's not really going to be any way out of it when you combine debt, the shift away from the U.S. dollar, and inflation internally. I'm and, correct. And, and that inflation may be deliberate because if you can't pay your debt, if you've reached the point that the U.S. now has reached, and uh, you can barely afford just the interest payments, and so that means it's totally unpayable, what you're going to have to do is default one way or another. And the, the stealth default is to... Get the, you know, print the more and more money, so you're paying back the debt in money that's worth less, uh, and that seems to be what they're planning. Of course, that depends on which countries are holding your paper and what they're going to demand in payment. Um, which countries do? I'm not. I'm not an economist, uh, Kevin. You, you're closer to this than I am. <laughs> well, which I'm not an economist are, either. <laughs> no, but, simply because you've been you've been doing it more on your show. Which countries hold most of our paper? Our treasury paper. I think I think it's the uh, oil, Middle Eastern oil countries, uh, China, and then a fair, fairly uh, broad spectrum of, of uh, countries around the world have some. But yeah. I think I think Middle East and China are the leaders, as I recall. Okay, and I, I know I know Japan holds a fair amount of it. Yeah, that's right. Um, it would be in, there is nothing to prohibit these countries from demanding payment in something other than. Well, you know, I've been advocating this, you know, as, as a uh, the uh, token radical Muslim at places like Veterans Today. Uh, I've long been advocating that the Islamic world needs to unite and then demand gold in payment for energy, which would then put the Islamic world in charge of global currency. And it could go a long way towards limiting or even ending riba or usury. Uh, in the Quran, we're told that God is at war. God and his prophet are at war with the usurers. So all Muslims are supposed to be at war with the usurers, too. And the simple way to win the victory over usury is for all the Islamic world to unite, demand payment in gold, and then make the gold dinar and silver dirham the de facto global reserve. <laughs> there'll, and, be uh, some there'll be some nasty editorials in the New York Times on that. There would be. Yeah, I, I don't think I have a whole lot of support in that project uh, from the American establishment, which is run by oligarchs who made their money through usury. But, hey, what are you going to do? So uh, an interesting item in this uh, article by Michael Hudson was uh, the point that the central aim of the World Bank is to prevent other countries from growing their own food. Uh, that's pretty nasty, but I, I believe that's true. I remember uh, learning about that when I was in African studies, how these African uh, countries were systematically uh, inundated with excess American wheat, powdered milk, and things like that, uh, with the intention of destroying their indigenous agricultural sector just so they would have to buy food from the U.S. and, and the world markets. Uh, so these places are going to starve now when the whole system collapses. I'll be interested to see how long we 
the U.S. is going to uh, allow farmers not to produce. Yeah, that's uh, that's been a problem uh, too. So anyway, according to Michael Hudson, this economic war on top of the military war with Russia is uh, rebounding in favor of of the Russians in the multipolar world. Uh, and Scott Ritter in our next slide says that that's true on the military front as well. He gives us this analysis of what's happening militarily, uh, pointing out that it's not that surprising that the Russians didn't just come in and take over the country all at once because they were at a, a three to one disadvantage in numbers. It's kind of amazing that, you know, this, uh, a hundred thousand Russian troops can defeat and essentially get rid of the major part of the Ukrainian army of 300,000, which has been trained by NATO. And still the Russians are winning, according to Ritter, and they will uh, clearly succeed in their mission, which is denazification finishing off the Azov Battalion and the rest of the Nazi component of the Ukrainian military. Um, and uh, then, of course, uh, saving the Donbass uh, from those Nazis. Uh, so do you agree with uh, Ritter's uh, military analysis here, which is so different from what we're seeing in the mainstream media? Well, I had several reactions to it. Uh, first of which, I ran into Scott's, uh, Scott's writings on the lead-up to the, the invasion on, of Iraq. And I've liked his work ever since, probably agree with about 90% of it. Um, I think he's largely correct on this one. The numbers aren't quite as bad. It's about 200,000 Russian troops and I think about 600,000 Ukrainian, including regular troops and reserves, which they have since called up. It's still three to one. Yeah, it's still th oh, more than three to one, actually. There's interesting volunteers, but we'll pass on that for the moment plus weapons from a lot of Western countries. Mm -hmm. The Russians are playing this, I think, very well, not, not only because of the requirements of having to live next door to Ukraine once all of this is over. Um, I don't think they'd be so kind if they were dealing with an Asian country. But because of their own experience, and their own experience is that if you get bogged down fighting inside of urban areas, you're going to lose a lot of very good troops very quickly in, in a war of attrition that is of no advantage to them. And so they managed to position themselves around major cities and basically blockade them. They have, from everything I've been able to gather, reading in the military publications around, I guess, eight or nine countries that completely discount the, the Western press. Um, the Ukrainian Air Force and Air Defense Forces have been largely destroyed. The Ukrainian Navy is gone. And the Russians are playing this very carefully. I don't know how far they're going to go after this. The only thing on which I would, I would disagree with Scott, and it's more of a a matter of semantics. You know, talking about denazifying it, there's certainly a, a right-wing force, very right-wing force in Ukraine, and it's this regimental strength Azov battalion or whatever he calls it. Um, I think, I think we forget that during World War II, there is a substantial anti-Russian, anti-communist sentiment throughout a lot of Europe. That the Waffen-SS in particular, the combat divisions of the Waffen-SS, were recruited from a wide range of European countries, all the Scandinavian countries, all of the Baltic states, at least two of them still hold memorial services. In Eastern Europe too. In Eastern Europe, Ukraine, France, French Charlemagne division of the Waffen-SS was in fact the last German unit to surrender in Berlin, in the ruins of Berlin in 1945. And they weren't doing this because they loved the Germans, but because they really, really loathed communism and communism was then associated with the Soviet Union. And that while the Holocaust, get ready to be banned, uh, was a hoax, the Holodomor in Ukraine in which the Soviet communists murdered something between seven and 10 million Ukrainians 
in a couple of years, basically starved them to death out in the open during the collectivization. That was very real. They knew it. And there were an awful lot of people that aligned themselves with the Germans and the German force which organized them was the Waffen-SS. So there is a historical reason for this. Pardon me? There's a historical reason for this uh, pro-Nazism. Yeah, a very, very historical reason. And there was a distinction between the communists and the Russians, but that was a distinction which blurred. And, you know, any professor of history or knowledge, person knowledgeable in history, which includes you, I, and a lot of other people, understands that there are very few pairs of countries bordering one another that have not had animosities and wars throughout the history of Europe. Really, they have that. And that there's that there would be people in Ukraine who would have had memories of, organization of, the Waffen-SS, who would be still anti-communist and anti-Russian and continue this, that's going to be there. That would be the same if the Russians were to reinvade or invade Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, take your pick of countries. Yeah, you could argue that the whole denazification program is uh, kind of a, a quixotic uh, quest because the more that Russia does in Ukraine, uh, the more they piss people off and Absolutely. You know, kill one Absolutely. Nazi and two more spring up in their place. So that, that could be a long-term problem for the Russians. That, that, that could be a long-term problem, but I, I think he's quite correct that we misunderstand, we being, I'm sorry, we don't misunderstand, but the Western press that is conveying this message to us misunderstands the, the numbers, misunderstands that the Russians understand urban warfare. They lost a huge number of people taking Berlin in the very last weeks of the war when the Germans had nowhere to go and were conscripting almost anything that they could fight, get to fight. They know what happened to the Germans trying to take Leningrad, fighting in Moscow, and most especially in Stalingrad. And the last thing a Russian general is going to do, even after two quarts of vodka and a good night, is going to say, why don't I send these troops? And the Russian army now is a lot better than the Soviet army. Why am I not, why don't I send these troops right into the streets of Kiev and have them fight an urban battle? Uh Uh-uh, not going to happen. It looks like a whole lot of the troops that were encircling Kiev are now heading for Donbass. And according to the Saker, we're about to see what should be a maybe three-week, possibly month-long battle for Donbass, uh, which the Russians will win, according to the Saker. Sure. Uh, but it'll be it'll be nasty, and the Ukrainians will, will fight quite ferociously, and the West will try to make it look like the Ukrainians are winning because the Russians didn't win in 10 minutes. So that's the Saker's prediction. We'll see if that all comes true. Uh, so uh, this geopolitical shift, as Russia is selling energy in only rubles now, pushing up the ruble and threatening the dollar as global reserve currency, uh, got a big boost from OPEC. Uh, Saudi Arabia and now the UAE, key OPEC members, are reaffirming OPEC's alliance with Russia. They're standing with the Russians against the petrodollar. Wait a minute, Alan. If the, the petrodollar, which is based on these Middle East Gulf despots being puppets of the United States, suddenly those guys break off and start siding with the Russians, all bets are off. I would say that that is an understatement. What I found most fascinating about it, and this is a nice way of presenting it, is that first the United States turned to the Emirates and Saudis in particular to increase their production of oil to facilitate our own energy shortages. Um, at first, I don't think either one of them took our calls. Yeah, they, they wouldn't take Biden's call. The president calls up the uh, crown prince of Saudi Arabia and uh, says, sorry, I'm too busy with my harem here, uh, my <laughs> cocaine, cocaine, champagne, and harem. Well, uh, you know, you, you can understand that combination, but I thought that the Quran would have something to say about the champagne. Harem's fine, champagne not. Yeah, yeah, I think the, the practicing Islamic element uh, high up in Saudi Arabia is, there is some, but it's it's rare. Uh, most of I heard guys, that. Yeah. And the, sen- the, the second thing I found really fascinating, and it's an interesting mark, I don't know of stupidity or desperation on the part of the Biden administration, is that having tried to overthrow the government of Venezuela 
and being at least aligned with Israel and Iran as our enemy, although we're sort of willing to bring them back into some type of a, of a nuclear non-proliferation agreement. And we want their oil now. And we want their oil. Now we went to both of them and say, get us oil. Sell us oil. Please, pretty and, please, Venezuela. Pretty yeah. please, Iran. Sell us oil. You're, the Venezuelans have, have sort of told the U.S. to pound sand. I think I'll pass on you. Thank you. And I'm not sure if the Iranians have stopped laughing long enough to be able to get up and tell yeah, us. Yeah, I mean, what the Iranians that. are saying is, well, if, if you guys will do the right thing with this yeah. nuclear deal, maybe we'll talk about it. You know, it, you know, some future historians writing in Chinese are going to have wonderful things to say about the the implosion and collapse of the United States. Indeed. And you have a picture later on that I'll show you that I'll talk about as, uh, as indicative of that. Okay, so so our headline for the show was was that uh, the what was it the the U.S. Uh, dollar hegemony collapsed last Wednesday, and another aspect to this quick uh, collapse of the U.S. empire that we're witnessing almost in real time uh, happened on the military front in Mariupol, and uh, Pepe Escobar captured an important aspect of that in this article, pointing out that what happened here, of course, was that this neo-Nazi Azov battalion. Uh, took a whole bunch of civilians of Mariupol, who actually are at least 50% pro-Russian, uh, Russian-speaking people, took them as human shields into the Av- Asvastal Iron and Steel Works, which is this huge um, factory, this huge iron and steel factory. Um, and the Russians are going to end up with that. They're not giving that back to Ukraine. So Escobar points out that uh, Novorossiya uh, will control a lot of steel-making capacity for Southern Europe, West Asia, and beyond when this thing is over. Yeah, I think that's very clear. Uh, the Russians are going to end this war with complete control of the Black Sea, you know, on their side of it, their side of the Ukrainian side. They're going to control a lot of the, of the key production and the energy. There's a lot of gas, apparently, uh, yeah. under the Black Sea there. What, what I find very intriguing, and you've got two or three articles that, that deal with, three, I think, that deal with, with Mariupol and the rest of them. There, there are two stories being presented. First of all is that the Russians are somehow able to occupy, enslave, I think was the phrase used, um, a large number of Ukrainian citizens. And the second is that the Ukrainian forces are resolutely defending them against Russian aggression. Now, one would think you can't have both. Yeah, well, we'll we'll get to that Washington Post story, uh, tacitly admitting the use of human shields uh, in a bit. But but here's here's a story that you're going to enjoy, Alan. Um, Biden's disastrous European tour uh, from Ron Paul. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. Uh, First, uh, he's warned that Russia might use chemical weapons, and Biden promises it would trigger a response in kind. So now Biden's threatening to use chemical weapons if the Russians do. And then, of course, they had to retract that. Then later, speaking to the 82nd Airborne in Poland, Biden says that U.S. troops uh, will soon be in Ukraine. He's telling the troops that you guys are going to be in Ukraine very soon. And then, of course, they have to walk that one back, too. And then finally, he says that our policy is regime change. Uh, you know, this this evil Putin, you know, he, he must go. Putin must go. And then they have to walk that back and say, no, 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 it's not our policy to have regime change in Russia. So, Alan, I think what we have here is a new iteration of Kissinger's madman theory, according to which they plan to convince North Vietnam and Nixon was crazy enough to use nuclear weapons, except in this case, it's the senile madman theory, according to which Joe Biden true. gets regime changes and adult diaper changes mixed up. I mean, you, you, left off, you left off one thing. He also referred to Putin as a butcher, which is sort of uh, ironic considering the record of the United States running through the Middle East and sort of That's slaughtering sure. millions of people. Yeah. Uh, and he's, he's been insulting Putin with all of these uh, really nasty words. We've never really seen that kind of language from presidents before. I mean, this is even worse are, than what they we were aren't saying hearing about now either. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure if Biden is aware he's president. He's sometimes referred to Kamala Harris as president. Uh, Joe Biden may be president, at least in, in Joe's mind, or what remains of it. It's really fascinating to see. You know, the Romans had an occasional emperor who went that way. It was Caligula who made his horse a council. Uh, I'm wondering if. Caligula would beat out Biden on the insane sweepstakes or if it would be the other way around. 
I so you don't, don't think this is just a clever ploy? It's not not a brilliant madman theory, 3D chess gambit, you know, Kissinger type thing. I've I would only hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see how that would work if it was. Uh, I could I could imagine I could imagine Putin. You know, the best thing Putin could do would be to challenge Biden to a to a judo match. And uh, so oh that, man, that, that, that's cool. That would Single be cool. combat between the leaders. Ouch. <laughs> oh man. So so let's let's go back to another part of Ukraine here, uh, up in sort of a, the, the northern northeastern Ukraine Russia border. Apparently, uh, some Ukrainians have managed to shell Russian territory. Four civilians were injured in uh, Zurolovka, which is about a mile from the Ukrainian border. This is being presented as a total turnaround in the war. Suddenly, the Battle of Stalingrad is going to come out the other way instead of this the way we heard. Um, I don't know, Alan. Is is a shelling a little bit of shelling of Zurolovka going to turn this whole thing around and put the Ukrainians on the offensive? I, I read that and I thought you had inserted it as a piece of comic relief. <laughs> yeah, they're kind of desperate, aren't they? It's just like like when Zelensky keeps saying, you know, uh, give give us a no fly zone, you know, take out the whole Russian air force and we can win. That kind of means that well, we're losing now, and the only way we could win is if you did that, right? I mean, they're really desperate for these pro-Ukraine, you know, Ukraine is winning kinds of talking points. And yet every day you look at an American newspaper or TV broadcast, whatever, it, they're te- they're trying to tell you that Ukraine is winning, but they're they're trying well, so desperately that it, it well, doesn't Kevin, really fly. Kevin, think of it. You, you have you have a gay comedian in Ukraine and a woke senile president in the United States. What could possibly go wrong? Hey, it's leadership of the free world. Of course. <laughs> oh, man. So, so let's get back to the Nazi topic. We, we just love to talk about Nazis, don't we? Uh, and, you know, I, I like to be, you know, I, I don't like to defend Nazis too much. Uh, most of the time, um, although I occasionally do point out that, you know, Hitler may not have been quite everything that they told us he was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, here, here's uh, the ADL uh, defending Nazis. That's right. The Anti-Defamation League doesn't want any defamation of Nazis. And they say, uh, this is, these are direct quotes from the Anti-Defamation yeah, League. I know. Yes, some members of these ultranationalist groups have used Nazi insignia, made Hitler salutes, and used anti-Semitic rhetoric. But they don't. They don't lynch Jews. They they love Jews. They want to send all the Jews to love camps and where they gas them with laughing gas and give them big hugs. <laughs> These are our Nazis, well, man. But seriously, you know, the, the very interesting point about this, when I read that first, that was amusing. <clears throat> but one of the really interesting things is the number of groups that have, that have signed on to the Aid for Ukraine train. And it includes ADL, APAC, SPLC in this country. The usual suspects. The New Economic Forum. Conservatives conservatives and Republicans are aligned with Democrats and the mainstream media on this issue, even though they aren't in any other. Mm-hmm. And, and they're, all, com- they're itself, all completely insane. <laughs> yeah, that in itself ought to make almost any sane person stop and say, let me think just what could be wrong with this picture. I mean, almost everything. Yep. Yeah. Almost well, the, everything. The ADL is going way out of its way to try to defend Nazis by saying, well, these are, these are nice Nazis. They don't, they don't mess with Jews too much. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, well something's the, up. The, the other thing you could say is that there's been a convergence between the Nazis that weren't and the Israelis that are, and that convergence is producing a sort of a reinterpretation of Nazis on the part of the ADL. Yeah, well, the ADL are pretty friendly with Zio Nazis anyway, so I guess, uh, and that's really what we're dealing with in Ukraine, right? The Zio Nazis, pretty much, or or Judeo Nazis, whatever you want to call them. Well, moving on to Mariupol again, or uh, moving back to Mariupol. Uh, this this was uh, um, Alan, our producer's contribution, a Washington Post article about relocation of civilians. I couldn't read it; I couldn't get past the paywall on this particular article. Uh, so, Alan, uh, how about you? Well, I got through enough of it, and I've done some other readings on the same subject. And there isn't there isn't any indication that that happened. Um, I've seen, you know, one thing well, we have to understand. Lie. You know, one thing that we have to understand is that there are so many lies coming out of this uh, on our side, and there's no particular reason to trust anything coming out of the Russian or pro-Russian side. 
you know, this is the question that the last liar standing will win, will win the war. Um, but the there's been a lot of videos showing a lot of Ukrainians in a lot of refugee camps around that city and others. Many of them have gone to the West. Many of them have fled to Russia because they have relatives there. I mean, you know, these, these two countries, Russia and Ukraine, were part of the Soviet Union for 70 years. They had generations of people who served in the armed forces for the sake of that unified country. They had families on both sides. They mostly speak Russian on both sides. And it would be surprising that there wouldn't be some movement of peoples around them. There isn't any indication that visual indication, visual confirmation with all of our satellite imagery that anything like this has happened. Mm -hmm. It doesn't surprise me. We haven't had any confirmation. Mm -hmm. We have not had any independent confirmation. Ought to be proof itself that it isn't happening. Forcible relocation. So so once again, it looks like they may be making stuff up. Wouldn't surprise me. I I wouldn't be surprised if they're forcibly relocating the Azov fighters that they capture. Uh, But huge numbers (laughs) of civilians, I don't know. So uh, moving on to the culture war. Uh, Henry McCoe. Uh, put out a very provocative piece here, to say the least. Uh, Russia versus West is the men versus femmes. Uh, he says, Russia versus West is very much healthy heterosexual males versus sexual misfits, pedophiles, homosexuals, and transvestites. Look at the Western leaders. Biden's a pedophile. Fidelito and Macron are homosexuals. Uh, Russians still have a firm glass, grasp on reality versus the delusional, sexually dysfunctional West. So, uh, Mako is, uh, is really all in here for the, uh, manly Russians versus the, uh, what, Pansy Brigade, I guess, as opposed to Panzer Brigade from the West. Uh, <laughs> I think he's exaggerating a little, but maybe the Russians, a little. Have, the Russians have a lot of, of women in their armed forces and yet they have combat units there too. Mm-hmm. But they haven't gone to this route. And I think that one of the interesting things that might be noted as part of the anti-Western hysteria on this is that Russia is probably the largest and most powerful anti-woke, not non-woke, but anti-woke, anti-LGBTQ, plus, 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 whatever it is, country in the world. And it's explicitly passed laws opposing it. The sort of thing that would make DeSantis in Florida look like he was in favor of. You know, maybe he should apply for a membership in the Russian Federation for Florida. Now, there's there's a solution. There you go. Since we want to have NATO troops on Russia's border, why not have Russian troops in Florida? Hey, the weather's a lot better than Alaska, which used much to be Russian. Better, much yeah. better. Much okay. better. Much okay. Well, they, the can, one that... <laughs> they can take vacations in Cuba. Yeah, I'm sure some of them, yeah, that, that's true. They've been doing that for a while. Well, Florida's a lot just, like Cuba. Just just interesting as an aside on this, um, all of the services are having serious recruiting problems, the Army in particular, to the point that's going to be reducing its numbers. And a great deal of it is because of not only the woke agenda, the transgender agenda, but the feminization that's taken place. And one of the last things that young men want is to have female drone instructors scream at them. And that's what they're doing. Well, there might be a few who actually kind of enjoy that sort of thing, but, you know, they're, they're many, whatever many. floats their boat. So, so most let's. Them, and most of them are in Wisconsin, I understand. <laughs> what do you mean? Was, hey, hey, we're, we're a bunch of manly cheesehead Green Bay Packer fans I, here. I thought it was that you, there were so much, many dairy cows that they would be used to. <laughs> Yeah, don't start joking about, uh, you know, Wisconsin's uh, <laughs> manly men and the cows are scared or anything like that. Move on to the next slide. Uh, <laughs> and along the same lines, our False Flag Weekly News colleague here, uh, that would be E. Michael Jones, asks whether the white boys are willing to die in defense of the gay disco. That's almost as provocative as the uh, the earlier piece by Henry McCoe. My goodness. Yeah. And, and it, this describes uh, this E. Mike's debate with Greg Johnson, who is apparently a pro-gay white nationalist, um, which is kind of a strange identity politics thing to have, but whatever. Uh, and so that it's, it's a long and drawn out article, but basically Michael Jones is 
uh, not so thrilled about uh, Ukraine. And Greg Johnson is all in favor of, of Ukraine. And, uh, uh, you know, the Ukraine flag and the rainbow flag are his two flags. Uh, and people can read the article for details. We, we got to move a little faster. So, Al, did you have any comments on that one? Only one thing. I think not only in the case of this, uh, of the gay disco or the title of the article of anything else, but in general terms, would the American military and police carry out orders from the Biden administration and Democrat governors and mayors? And I think the one thing we need to look at, because Canada is a lot like us, is Canada. And up there, the Canadian military, Canadian police, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, probably the best of their police services, the national police in every sense of the term, the overwhelming majority of them there and when called upon to do so by Democrat mayors in the United States, overwhelming majority carried out their orders. Yeah, they, they cleared the truckers out. And so yeah. who knows whether they'll clear the equivalent of the truckers out here if it comes to that. Uh, well, will we get regime change in the USA then? Maybe not. But uh, how about Russia? That's where, you know, Biden, we already mentioned Biden's uh, slip of the tongue uh, and his uh, weird attempts to walk it back. Uh, I, I thought the best line from this Matt Tidy article was the uh, president's face is often a mask of terror, like a man unsure of how he came to be standing in the middle of an intersection. I thought that did describe uh, some of Biden's looks pretty well. Um, so uh, what do you think of Tybee's uh, take on all this? Hello, Ellen. I, I don't, I, I don't, I know. I'm, yeah. I don't know whether to say words fail me <laughs> or wake me up when it's over. Uh-huh. You know, the, the general, when we understand that the president is in fact suffering clinically from progressive senile dementia, it's not so much that this doesn't work, it's that we're morons to let this continue, but that the alternatives, 25th Amendment to remove, to remove him, we get Kamala Harris. We remove both of them, at least in the short term, we get Pelosi and Schumer. Hmm. So it's probably not worth it. It's a question of, of from a, a broken frying pan into very hot fires. Okay, so regime change is, is hopeless, both in Russia and in the United States. Oh, my goodness, I, that, that's the most depressing. There are, there, are, there are very few problems in the United States and the world that wouldn't be resolved if a volcano erupted suddenly under Washington, D.C., Okay, well, that's the kind of regime change we should be praying for. And, of course, with Allah, all things are possible. That doesn't mean that a volcano under D.C. is particularly probable. But uh, <laughs> inshallah. So uh, <laughs> that next next story, uh, Washington Post uh, actually noticed that the uh, Ukro-Nazis, let's call them that, uh, the Azov Brigade, are using human shields. But the way the Washington Post puts it is, increasingly Ukrainians are confronting an uncomfortable truth. The military's understandable impulse to defend against Russian attacks could be putting civilians in the crosshairs. Virtually every neighborhood in most cities has become militarized, making them potential targets for Russian forces trying to take out Ukrainian defenses. What that means is that the Ukrainians are holding human shields, but Washington Post can't just come out and say it. It would be unsurprising if they'd use them if some of them would use human shields, but I doubt it. Well, they, I, I, the, the, the real thing is, did, did Russia kill civilians? Absolutely. Are Russians, would, would, did we kill civilians? Did we, in our wars? Did anyone say anything? Yes, we did. No, no one said anything. Uh, the idea of human shields, the problem with a human shield is that the shield has to be so close to you that any decent defender would take you out as well as the shield. I mean, you really, if you put the human shield in front of you at a distance, 
uh, enough so that you're going to be safe from whatever affects the human shield, then there's no shield. And if you have the shield on top, right in front of you, or tied to your vehicle, or moving in front of your vehicle, then whatever takes off the human shield takes you out too, so it's no value. But, but it's, what the sort of, it's the sort of thing that could be done by a few people in very desperate situations, trying to get back to their lines. But the fact that it would have any particular effect or any be used in any significant way, I find very, very difficult to believe. But the reports are that these uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainians have been abused for trying to leave uh, neighborhoods and blocks and buildings and so on that are being used as military uh, defensive bastions by the Ukrainians. I'm not surprised, but being being not allowed not to leave or being kept from leaving is an entirely different thing from using them as human shields. Really? Because the Russians are, are refusing to go all out with the artillery because these places are full of civilians that are being kept there against their will by the Ukrainians. That's not a that, huge that would, that would apply only if the Russians intended to take the cities. And what they're doing is isolating the cities. No, this is happening in Mariupol. They are taking, they took it, they've pretty much finished taking Mariupol that, despite the human shields. Mariupol is one of those places they want to keep. Kiev oh. is not. Okay, well, we, we can agree a little bit to disagree on that because we're a bit behind. Okay. We're, we have half the stories done and two-thirds of the time has passed, so let's move on to <laughs> a censorship issue. We, we have nothing to say about censorship. We'll make that really short because ah. we're, we're gagged and so on. No, no. The New York Times says that America has a free speech problem. Okay. Uh, <laughs> New York Times says that people are afraid to speak their minds or they'll be shamed and shunned. Well, New York Times just shamed and shunned RFK Jr., and they've been leading the charge against free speech. Did they just get a change of heart? Did they come to God? I doubt it. I doubt it very much on it. I expect Barry Weiss, a former editor up there, would be surprised at this notion that it's a bastion of free speech. It's not. Uh, it's really intriguing that they've already been attacked by most of the other mainstream media, basically for, I guess, spilling the beans and what the people have been doing. The question is why they did it. Uh, is there, I don't know, Kevin, is there circulation down that far? I, have, I haven't looked at them in a long time. Well, they, they did pretty well during the Trump era because all the Trump-hating uh, latte liberals and soccer moms uh, paid them for paid Internet subscriptions. But I think since Trump left, they've been down a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what their motivation would be. I know that um, a couple of reporters, I think Rosenberg in particular was, was one of them, who were outed by Project Veritas uh, for spilling the beans on things like January 6th. You know, certainly it made it very clear that there was a lot of unpleasantness going on with, within the Times. Maybe it became so intense that the Times decided that it had to clean up its internal act and the best way to do that was by taking, quote-unquote, a high moral position. Uh, although that would be the more senior editors, everything I've read indicates that most of the real extremism at the Times comes from the mid-level and junior editors and staffers. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones. They're the ones that forced Barry Weiss out, for example. Yeah, that's the, the uh, Generation Z uh, woke yeah, brigade. Yeah. Speaking of the Z brigade, our, our, <laughs> our next story is. I just uh, thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're not. That's our next story. Actually, is in in Germany, you can get three years in prison for using the letter Z. Um, wow, how does that work? Well, it's because Z is a symbol of the Russians. Apparently, I didn't know that, but now I do. So. I guess we have to change that old uh, saying, you know, first they came for Z, and I did not speak out. And then they came for W, X, and Y, and I did not speak out. Then they came for QRSTUV, and I did not speak out. Then they came for HIJKLMNOP, and I did not speak out. So finally, when they came to for A, B, C, D, E, F, G, I, 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 I saw that. I thought that was really, first of all, I learned that this is supposed to be a pro-Russian symbol. Little surprising. That's pretty But bizarre. I just thought that the number of words in German that are going to have to be excised. Sutsamen, for example, together can't do it. It's forbidden. It starts with a Z. You know. <laughs> Where, well, when are we going to get? <laughs> can't do it. Can't say it. Sutsamen. 
three years in prison. <laughs> I, I thought this story was a parody or something at first, but I did too. I did too. The, the various justice minister, George Eisenreich. Was this published in the Babylon Bee? I don't recall. Yeah, exactly. But no, he, he says, uh, we do not accept international crimes being condoned. So anybody who uses the letter Z is condoning what he thinks is an international crime, the Russian attack on Ukraine. So apparently now support for Nazis is once again mandatory in Germany. We've come full circle. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't make this stuff up. Uh, I know. That's... <laughs> but, you know, if you want to go someplace where you actually can hear or see the letter Z, how about Rumble? Rumble, the free speech video streaming platform that we're on right now. You can still say Z. Ah, the Germans are coming after me. Uh, Rumble actually is doing a great job at that. And, and for some reason, Alan, it seems like it's mostly so-called conservatives who are interested in a free speech platform. Rumble, what they do is they don't you know, shadow ban. They don't wait one user over another like YouTube does. They just, it's a free for all and everybody gets an honest algorithm, which means that I can actually get videos back up into six figures like I used to be able to on YouTube. So Rumble, I think is, is doing a fantastic job. They're not, they're not uh, tilting the table in favor of uh, the right wing or conservatives. It's just honest. But for some reason, it seems like the right wing conservative people are the ones who need that right now. I wonder why that could be. I wonder why too. Um, I have actually never used Rumble. Um, well, you're using it right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, the obvious reason is that, and of course we, we, we know this, that so much of the mainstream social media, Twitter, which is virtually anti-First Amendment, Facebook and YouTube, which do a great deal of banning, outright banning as well, shadow banning, uh, the concept of hate or hateful speech or hate speech itself basically is anything which even casts a shadow of doubt on the more extreme left-wing agenda. And I suppose anything which doesn't do that um, would constitute free speech. Uh, I use Gab, for example, in Odyssey. Rumble is something I'll look at and see what it is. But it's yeah, good yeah. that there's something out there. Well, Rumble is just the kind of YouTube alternative that uh, is, you know, it's an honest, it's got honest algorithms and no real censorship except of, you know, really well, criminal type stuff. A, a, war a warning to you, good friend. Uh, YouTube and, of course, the other social media did the same thing when they were in their salad days and growing. Yeah. Once they became prosperous and successful, then then censorship gradually from 2018, I guess, became became more notable. Yeah, bait and switch. Yeah, if any of these things, if YouTube, Facebook, Twitter had had the same type of censorship today when they were, say, 10 years ago, when I first started on them, they never would have gotten to be the size and influence that they are today. That's and right. I would be very leery of trusting Rumble or Gab, for that matter, or anything else, mm -hmm. uh, extensively, if they really are successful. Some success, yes. Too much success, it's like it's a variant on an actum sictum. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Success corrupts, absolute success corrupts, absolutely. In this New York Times article, is essentially a warning sign, you know, saying yep. that the establishment is starting to think that uh, that Rumble is too successful. Yep, so, yeah, exactly. we better better keep an eye on that. Uh, and if they take down Rumble, I suppose we'll have to migrate somewhere else. And uh, there'll be this continuing sort of ecology of free speech sites doing well, growing, and then getting killed off, and then new ones grow up. Oh, well, uh, speaking of ecology, uh, toxins and bioagents are uh, a certain part of the human ecology that's gotten a little bit of controversial coverage over in the Ukraine uh, there's this, I thought this article from Jeff K was a pretty good balanced piece on the bioweapons research in Ukraine that the, Russia is saying, you know, was threatening them. And then I think it was, uh, oh, which, which, uh, the article that we covered last week from the intercept, uh, said that no, these were just harmless pathogens. Uh, turns out there was anthrax research in Kiev. Uh, there was migratory bird and bat spreading of pathogen research in Odessa. Uh, documents, uh, these actual U.S. Ukraine documents included 
uh, mentions of at least there were these labs were dealing with at least five bioterror threats, including Shigella and Salmonella. So the Intercept article last week was every bit the BS that we said it was. Mm -hmm. Well, that the one thing that that really bothered me about this was the uh, suggestion that in fact there was research being done on programming radical feminists to infect the West. <laughs> that sounds like a really nasty uh, biowar plot. Uh, watch, oh, watch out would, for those. Uh, sounds like a good, a good science fiction uh, idea, too. It, it, so. it was. Unfortunately, the the model they used for it was Bella Absol. Yikes. That so that, that maybe most... that's why uh, that Ukraine has warned the negotiators to not eat or drink anything at the talks with Russia, <laughs> so because it, it might turn you into Bella Abzug. Um, I, again, this is another Washington Post story I, I couldn't read because it, so Alan, our producer, is going to have to send the text next time he sends Washington Post stories because I can I only get through the paywall on on a very small minority of them. Uh, so, do you think the Russians poison everybody, Alan? Would you be afraid to go to lunch with a Russian? I think the only problem they have is they're going to use this excuses uh, for uh, a tendency on the part of the Western negotiators not to be able to handle Russian vodka. <laughs> there you go. Well, I, I, you know, I, my, my excuse is, is my religion. I, I'm not going to be drinking vodka with any Russians either. Not because I'm afraid of turning into Bella Abzug. That's not even an issue. So, uh, how about Joe uh -huh. Biden's laptop? Let's, let's go to the laptop. Be careful. Uh, laptop is, a, is always a big story, it seems like. Uh, so Matt Getz, uh, has entered Biden's laptop into the congressional record after Nadler capitulated. Uh, so I guess that's now the public record. Um, what? Well, so, it we is, but no one reads it, really. Um, I I used to think this was really neat back in grad school. This was about 500 years ago when you still used stone tablets and chisel and, and did things like that. Um, and some really strong statements and very powerful speeches by various members of the House and the Senate. And then I realized that the congressional record wasn't a record of current what was actually said it was a record of what people wished they had say, said and that they would often have statements inserted attributed to them as a speech which had never been said but were written later and as a result no one paid attention to it unless they were doing research so are, are you saying that somebody could come in and, and change the contents of hunter biden's laptop in the congressional record so rather yes. than kitty porn selfies there would be something else they could well, I guess we can't trust the congressional record or the laptop. Um, speaking of the other laptop story from Off Guardian is questioning why we're hearing so much about the laptop. Why has the establishment confirmed it really was Hunter's laptop? We all knew it was, but they denied it. They brought out 50 top intelligence experts to tell us that, no, this is just Russian disinformation. Well, now, finally, the New York Times just a week or two ago confirmed, no, it's really Hunter's laptop. Why are they doing this? Yeah, I think we should be suspicious, although the... Uh, off-Guardian uh, person here didn't seem to think of the obvious reason. Maybe they're trying to pressure Biden. Somebody in the neocon war party is pressuring Biden to be more uh, belligerent in Ukraine. And maybe this is, you know, turning up the pain dial. I think that's actually uh, too minor. One of two arguments, depending on your, on your perspective on Biden. First is that they realize that Biden is a train wreck in progress. And they're trying to find a way of removing him without calling into question the agenda of the Democratic Party. And if they do that, Hunter's laptop, which apparently incriminates uh, Joe Biden at least as much, if not big, more, big than Hunter Biden, is going to be a way to do it, that he gets personally trashed by it along with Hunter, but the party and its agenda is not. Mm -hmm. the so, other, so they put in Kamala. Yeah, he would, so that, that would get, <clears throat> excuse me, that would get him out of position in time for someone else to take over and be positioned by the next election. Mm -hmm. Of course, that someone else would be Kamala Harris, and I don't think it'd be wildly enthusiastic about that. Um, yeah, her negatives are as, as bad as Biden's. Yeah, the other day, actually, she has even worse polls than Biden, which is saying an awful lot. Yeah. Um, the other is that they're going to use it to distance themselves from the administration, uh, from both of them. The 25th Amendment could be applied both to the vice president as well as the president, I suppose, by extension. Hmm. 
Um, well, that, that's a stretch, though, because from the Democrats' perspective, I don't think that they're going to. I don't think they're going to see material for that on Harris. But that's, it's not going to matter. This is something Republicans have to remember. In all of the swing states that matter, they still count the votes. And this time, the feds are on their side. Ah, okay. So there is hope. Your your pessimism from uh, from a few months back uh, sounds like it's mellowing a little bit, which I guess is good. Uh, well, Trump oh, no. tra- <laughs> Trump wants to help them solve this problem. Trump's on your on their side, the Democrat side, apparently, because Trump wants uh, Putin to dish out more dirt on Biden, which then, as you suggest, could put Biden out of office, and that actually would help the Democrats. So that means that Donald Trump is a secret Democrat. <laughs> he was a Democrat most of his life, wasn't he? He was, yeah, yeah. There you go. He's 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 deep cover. He's yeah, like Ronald Reagan, the same way. Well, <laughs> possibly he's going to run again as as a Democrat. Oh man, that's uh, you know, stranger <laughs> things have happened, but I can't think of which ones. <laughs> okay, let, let's move to the insurrection stories. The uh, uh, insurrection, you know, involved. I guess it was a coup d'état. We're told, and Trump broke the law by corruptly attempting to obstruct the confirmation of Biden's Electoral College win, according to uh, this particular judge. So we're told that Trump broke the law and supporting this idea of Trump plotting a coup and breaking the law. We have the next Washington Post story. Uh, and this one, I think I was actually miraculously enough able to read somehow. I don't know why I can get through the paywall sometimes, but not others. And uh, so Trump apparently was using a burner phone because there's a seven hour gap in his phone calls. But Trump says burner phone. What's a burner phone? I never heard that expression before. <laughs> so what's going on here, Alan? Oh, two reactions. Um, first of all, on the, on the previous slide, uh, the judge is a Clinton appointee, a very active Democrat. And I suspect if it had gone to a Republican judge instead, the person would say Trump did not break the law. Although I suppose if you believe, um, I certainly do, that there was massive election fraud in, in 2020, and you know I'm not a Trump supporter, never was, and vote for me either time. Um, I suppose, is it illegal to try and overturn an illegal election? That would be an interesting concept. That's right. Yeah, the, the whole argument against Trump here rests on the premise that the election outcome was honest and legitimate, and Trump knew that. And I'm pretty sure Trump didn't know that. I mean, what, whatever the truth is about the election, I think Trump honestly believed in you know his uh, his mind that I, it, it was it was bad. It was a, a bad, bogus election. So if he at, believes at it a, honestly, a, then you know. Yeah, at a minimum, at a minimum, from from my own personal experience. Uh, in Michigan and Pennsylvania, it was fraud, massive fraud, and the votes were not that far apart. But on the second one, <laughs> given the FBI's history and the Biden administration's agenda, do you really think that they turned over unedited logs from their computer? Ah, okay. So this is the mysterious seven-hour gap in Trump's phone calls uh, could be a function of the FBI's editing, I suppose. Or, or the Biden administration, sure. Yeah, you just never know, do you? So uh, that's because, you know, we're not living in an honest democracy under the rule of law. We're living in an oligarchy. And the Washington Post had an article about that uh, saying we need to choose between great wealth or democracy. Well, once in a while, I actually agree with Jeff Bezos and his slaves at the Washington Post. Uh, funny that <laughs> Bezos, uh, the world's richest man, is telling us that we have to get rid of great wealth. Um, you know, he's welcome to do that. Uh, I'll give him my P.O. box if he needs it. Anyway... <laughs> The middle class has fallen from two-thirds of us to fewer than half of us. And the top 1% of Americans have taken $50 trillion from the bottom 90%. So this is all, uh, it all started with Reagan, according to this article. And this is all, this is the problem, the problem that led to the election of Trump is this great inequality. And, you know, terrible things like more people like Trump uh, will be in our future if we don't fix this inequality problem. Well, I agree with a lot of that, including the fact that we're an oligarchy and we need to end the oligarchy. But some of the details I'm not so sure about. How about you? Uh, neither was I, but I thought it very intriguing. I've never thought that a democracy was a really great idea. Certainly the founders did. They wanted a republic, not a democracy, and they got the democracy. Yeah, well, I I agree. I don't think 
the, you know, this worship of democracy as the be all end all is ridiculous. I mean, what we want is good governance. We want virtue in governance. And do you get virtue from democracy? Not much. Do you get virtue from oligarchy? I think even less. So where are you going to get virtue? I think theocracy. I'm all for the Islamic Republic of Iran system, although we need to modify it for our local circumstances. He, Michael Jones is with me on that. When we met in Iran, he was, he thought he was, he died and gone to heaven, except instead of Catholics, they were all Shia Muslims. <laughs> uh, I, I can't, I can't, you know, words fail me. I can imagine that you could get a Jim Jones at some point for your theocracy. I don't know that that would be terrible. No, e. Michael true. Jones, not Jim Jones. <laughs> All right, well, we'll, de we'll debate theocracy versus whatever system you're going to advocate in the next uh, episode, maybe. But now we'll move on to... Oh, yeah. The, a lot, one of the nice things about our oligarchy is they're all a bunch of perverts. Well, a lot of them anyway. And they all have dirt on each other. And the intelligence agencies and organized crime have a lot of dirt on most, if not all of them. And Madison Cawthorn, this Republican congressman, is now revealing that he's watched the biggest names in politics snorting cocaine by the boatload, well, by the line load or whatever kind of loads they snort. And he says he's being invited to these perverted sex orgies where they're going to get dirt on him, too, like they have dirt on everybody else. Well, that's interesting that he blew the whistle on this. Or is, is, uh, is he looking at a lower life expectancy for talking about this? <laughs> First of all, I don't know why anyone would be surprised at that. I don't know why anyone who's worked in Washington would be surprised that something like that would take place. Yeah, I guess the constituents back home are kind of surprised, at least that he's he's talking about it. But but you know, this the reality of this does give rise to all of the feverish Q conspiracy theories. But there is, you know, there's a there there. You know, the the Q th material probably wouldn't have ever gotten started if we didn't have this total moral cesspool in Washington D.C. So, like you said, uh, hey, bring on the volcano. <laughs> All right. And, and, and that volcano actually it could be a popular uprising at some point, Alan. I still say that, that you know, the, if the economy tanks badly enough and we have a bad enough military fiasco like, you know, losing Ukraine the way we've lost Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya and every, well, maybe not Libya. We, we just wanted to destroy Libya. We succeeded there. Anyway, if the economy implodes completely, uh, people might finally get mad enough to uh, storm D.C. with their torches and fix pitchforks and create their own version of a volcano. And it looks like that could happen. In the next slide, we see that there are a lot of reasons to expect some more supply chain disruption. And one of them is that Shanghai is still locking people down. Uh, Monday, they're going to lock down 10 million people. And then the next week, they lock down another 11 million. And this is all in pursuit of their zero COVID policy, and it's going to mess with the supply chains. And this is leading one of the many, many factors, along with the um, Ukraine situation that's led to warnings of food shortages and inflation, such as in this next slide, the RT story. BlackRock President Rob Capito told oil and gas executives last Tuesday that America, these entitled Americans don't even know what's coming at them. And, you know, and it's already this year, we've lost $5,200 worth of our buying power on consumer goods. And uh, just wait till we see what hits us next year. So, uh, things, if things get bad enough, Alan, do you think that the torches and pitchforks will finally come out? I don't, I don't know if the torches and pitchforks will come out. I know it's, it's intriguing. I was in, uh, in the Soviet Union once, just once in 1987, 87, 88. And I was really intrigued by their, their big supermarket, their, actually supermarket and department store, the GUN star on Red Square. Never and there were parts there. of it in the food areas that were entire shelves that were empty, just gone. And I started to notice an odd similarity to ours. I don't think that Americans really understand what it means to have come to the end of enough. And I don't think it really matters, having come to the end of enough, how we try and work our way out of it. I'm not sure there is a way out of it. We're like uh, we're like a runner who treated the coaches and the people in the stands badly when we were winning, and we're going to need their help to pick ourselves up. We're not going to get it. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the runner who's been badly, treating the audience uh, badly uh, had better still have some 
some energy in his legs as he takes off and flees with a mob behind him. Uh, and indeed, I wouldn't be surprised if the world does take a pretty dim view of the U.S. in the aftermath of our, uh, our imperial collapse that looks like it's coming. Well, moving on to some comic relief. Um, how about Lara Logan? Uh, she compared Dr. Fauci to Joseph Mengele last November, uh, and she, she darn well should have apologized to Dr. Mengele for that comparison. I know, that was my thought, that too. That was your line, yeah. <laughs> was my thought, too. It's, uh, what I thought was even better, the, uh, the second one on, uh, Logan. Oh, Evolution is a hoax funded by Jews. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Does anyone know who played Darwin? It was the Rothschilds. Uh, you know, well, well, be intriguing <laughs> since Darwin wasn't Jewish. <laughs> there was some debate over what he was. Uh, he said he was finally, I thought he was most comfortable being an agnostic or theist. Yeah, he was uh, like a deist, uh, an ex-Anglican or something. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so I don't think in that case, yeah. Yeah, I think Larry Logan got this whole story mixed up with the Schofield Bible story. The Schofield Bible was funded by the Rothschilds, but Darwin was not. Um, but people who want to explore the... Jewish dimension of Darwinism and evolutionary theory should read Laurent Guyano's essays and especially his book from Yahweh to Zion, which I edited and published. Uh, he gets into the background of the Jewish evolution. Uh, it's, question. it's possible that Laris had, uh, had studied with Sarah Palin. <laughs> maybe that was it. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe she read Lauren Guyano's book and, and got a little confused or something. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Lara is, a, is getting a little bit red pilled anyway, which I guess is good. Uh, she needs to work a little bit though. Uh, and, um, so, so anyway, let's, let's finally, our final comic relief story here mm. is the, uh, IDU. <laughs> That's the Israeli dog unit. You've heard of the IDF. Well, the IDU says the Israeli, def it's, it's dog. Uh, actually, maybe IDF is Israeli dog forces, too, for all I know. I don't know. But anyway, the Israeli dog unit is capturing agricultural ter terrorists, meaning sheep rustlers. Uh, you have to read this story to believe it. And I don't know if I can even stand to just read it. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you, Alan. Alan, what do you think about these heroic Israeli dogs uh, fighting <laughs> terrorists who steal sheep? Well, they, they actually do some good work. Uh, the dog unit, like a lot of rescue dogs, will go into buildings and find people sometimes who have been trapped in collapsed buildings. But my reaction to it was um, I was outraged that the Israelis refused to have uh, a cat unit because anyone who would not have that is a catist and there's no point in having them on the same show. Okay, well, uh, if the Israelis want to get fully politically correct, they're going to have to start a cat unit. And when they do, we will report it right here at False Flag Weekly News. Thank you. A big cat unit. Uh, the big cat unit. Okay, I guess. Yeah, that, that actually sounds a little more formidable. Um, I, I don't think I want to mess with that. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll definitely quit uh, criticizing Israel if they ever break out a big cat unit. I would recommend that. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Ellen Sobrowski. It's always fun doing the show with you. Uh, and thanks for, for getting all of the, the particulars together. Your Internet is good now. Uh, congratulations on that, too. Thank you very much, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be with you. Likewise. And until the next time, God bless. And thank you to our viewers and our fundraiser supporters. See you all next time.